Welcome to The Forest and the Trees, global and local perspectives on the environment, with your host, Melinda Tuhus. My guest today is Leticia Colón de Mejías, a Connecticut climate and social justice activist in many realms and on so many levels. Stay tuned. I want to welcome Leticia Colón de Mejías to my show. I am so happy to have you here. How are you doing this morning? I'm good, Melinda. Thanks for asking. I made a list of the the different ways that I know you, and we're never going to be able to touch on them all even a little bit in this interview, but I wanted to just tell our listeners, this is these are the things that I know about you and, and really would love to um, share more with our listeners. So I know um, that you have a company that does energy efficiency work and you hire a lot of uh, people, including I think mostly uh, people of color who maybe haven't had so much opportunity in the field. I know that you have a nonprofit called uh, Efficiency for All that works in that realm um, to influence policy and so on. I know that you have a program called Eco Warriors. That is the, ch- the youth, uh, the children's outreach kind of part of your life with your comic books and and all the all the work you do with young people then there is um your property your five acres in windsor which i visited and which was truly amazing um all the things you've done with it and then you are a nationally prominent figure you've testified to congress and you're on national and state task forces and then there's your family so so in about the 27 minutes remaining um I think what I'd like you to do is I love your story about how you discovered climate change. Um, I, when you, you spoke at a conference, now it's been several years back. If you could just uh, talk about that and how you and your husband kind of uh, took up that issue with your family and, and then what came from there. Can, can we do it that way? I love that, Melinda. And I really like the way that you, all the years I've known you, I really enjoyed your role as a reporter and seeing how you grab information from people and how uh, adept you are at bringing out what a person is really about. So I think that's a great question. And most people are unaware of that story. So in 2008, somewhere around there, my stepson, Jonathan, uh, was a middle school student and as was my son, Miles. Um, They were both at Sage Park in Windsor and they were doing a project. Actually, Jonathan was really concerned about plastic and the environment. He had learned about plastic killing turtles, sea turtles um, and seabirds, and that was really bothering him. So I started kind of supporting his schoolwork because he's a genius and he really wasn't being challenged enough at school. So we decided to do a project as a family to study the trash system. And during that project, there's Future Problem Solvers, which was a school program, we started learning about environmental issues at a really deep level. And we didn't watch TV at the time. So we started digging into books, looking for materials online, talking to local people who worked in trash. At that time, I came across the film Kilowatt Hours, O-U-R-S, by Jeffrey Berry. At the time, it wasn't even by BBC yet. It was just Jeffrey Berry as an independent filmmaker. And he and his wife um, lived in the Smoky Mountains, and they were really upset about mountaintop removal. 
And they made this film about mountaintop removal, acid rain, and the implications of the energy systems, infrastructure, energy plants, distribution, extraction, and all of the things that we never see. Like these are things that we never see in our world as Americans. I've never seen mountaintop removal at the time. I hadn't seen it, I should say. And let me, let me just break in for one quick sec for people who I don't know if there's folks out there. When we say mountaintop removal, I always know exactly what I mean. And I've actually done quite a bit of reporting about it. But the, the mount the purpose of the mountaintop removal is to get at the coal seams. They blow up the mountain, literally blow up the mountains. They blow the tops off. And then they can access the coal seams, which, okay, continue your story, please. So that's the part I had never seen, Melinda. And it was shocking to me. Like, I was literally shocking. I was in, I was in tears, as were my kids, watching this documentary. And I had gotten it from a friend who used to own this place called Alchemy Cafe in Hartford. And his name is John Zito. And John used to hold film nights, like, uh, once a month for free. People could come to his restaurant and watch documentaries about plastic pollution or, you know, PFAS before that was like really cool in the community. And so that's where I saw the film and it just was eating me up. It was bothering me. So I showed the film. I was teaching adult students at Hartford Healthcare. I was running a workforce development program called Yes, that I had written, Your Educational Success, which helped entry level or incumbent workers learn critical life skills and also receive certifications through Capital Community College or Center for Latino Progress or CRAC, who were my partners in the community. And we would train people for higher level careers to change their lives. And I also would teach people how to eat good food versus going out to eat because they could save money by cooking at home. And it was also helping the planet by eating local and eating more green food and less meat. So all of these concepts were part of my yes class. And I decided to add in the lens of climate and energy pollution. And I showed the film to this group of adults who were in this training program at Hartford Healthcare, and they were just as upset as me. They were just as angry that they had, these were all black and brown students, I should say, and they were all adults over 30. And none of us had, prior to seeing Kilowatt Hours by Jeffrey Berry, we had no idea that our kids' asthma was directly related to our energy plant or how often we had the TV or computer on or that asthma and cancer and stroke were really caused by energy pollution. Because to be honest, Belinda, prior to seeing kilowatt hours, I never once thought about where my energy came from. Just like air, I assumed that it was always gonna be there for me. And I never thought about the processes or the impacts that come from our energy demands as humans. And when I realized this, how children were dying in other countries because of you know coal cesspools or sludge mine pits, or mountaintop removal, or fracking, which I learned about later, or in the nuclear waste issues we have. As I dug down the rabbit hole, and the more my children, my husband and I learned, the more we felt responsible to share what we know and to tell others so that they could join in the work of empowering everybody, really, and all of the American people and all of the world, hopefully over time, to make wise choices and to see ourselves as interconnected to the planet, which literally sustains our very lives. Well, thank you. <laughs> I, I I love, you know, how you make that connection, which people don't make and people don't know. Like you said, you took energy for granted that it would always be there. I think that's what everybody does. Although in the last few years, even here in Connecticut, 
I know I've been here 35 years and we've had more power outages in the last five years than we had in the 30 years before that. So it's starting, I think, to maybe make people a little nervous that maybe it's not as sort of going to always be there as we, as those of us who are old enough to remember, uh, had always assumed. But um, so from from that story, from that uh, work that you did and that studying you did with your family, what came next for you? Sure. So I'm an inquisitive person, which I'm sure anyone who knows me will, will know. One of the things I'm often quoted saying to children is ask questions, dig deeper, find your own resources and answers. And I really learned that as a brown child. Truth be told, as a Latina, and my father was very, very dark skinned. People often um, confused my father for an African-American. In fact, we lived in the South when I was a child, and it was quite problematic because my mother was white. And that's actually why we moved back north. So we came here with this inquisitive nature and me being kind of different as a multiracial child. I didn't quite fit in right away. And I didn't understand what my teachers were saying or how they were trying to teach me. And so I started to learn to seek answers in books. I really became a fan of the library, kind of obsessed with it, really. I would walk to the library daily and just check out book after book on different topics. And as an adult, I'm similar. So when I learned about this energy thing and I realized how interconnected energy was to other problematic environmental injustices, like energy is directly related to plastic. Plastic is just another form of oil <laughs> and petroleum is also styrofoam, you know, and we use gas byproducts to make plastics and styrofoams. And as I realized the interconnection also of the water pollution and the air pollution, I thought, man, we're living in this world where we're so disconnected and disjointed from reality because we live inside of buildings, we work inside of buildings, and those buildings are climate controlled, that we have forgotten that actually outside of those buildings does impact the inside or us, our human lives. So I thought, well, how can I help connect people to these ideas? And for me, Melinda, I thought it was most important to connect the younger generation to the ideas, because I find that sometimes older people are stuck in their ways. And so I thought if I could connect with middle school kids and kindergartners and first and second and third graders and college kids even on these ideas of interconnection and pose the questions to them, like what could we do differently or how could we make a difference that it would empower them to think of ideas and maybe implement them because they would feel ownership over those ideas. So that's what I did. I started a kids group at uh, Sage Park Middle School, and I got a bunch of students together and we started making short films and the kids would research topics like energy pollution or plastic pollution or recycling and whether it was available in the town they lived in or not. And then they would make short films. And uh, my husband and I, we worked real jobs. We worked at Hartford Healthcare. My husband worked, I think, at an insurance agency at the time. So at night, after dinner and after the kids had done their homework, we would set up our computers in the kitchen table and we would edit the films that kids made on weekends at our house. And then we would post them to Win TV. It was a public television station and also to the internet um, to try and educate people on recycling or energy use or drawing down demand. But after a while, I realized that wasn't enough and I couldn't reach enough people. So I started turning the ideas into books because I thought, well, books people can read without me, just like I did at the library. I never met, for example, Albert Einstein, but I've read things he's written. So I thought, what if I put my ideas in writing? So for all prosperity, after I was gone, people would have access to these ideas and maybe implement them without me. 
And that's what I did. And kids helped me write graphic text, which we called comic books back then. And then over time, I worked multiple jobs, one, two jobs, three jobs at a time, generally three at a time. And I would consult for people like Capital Community Colleges Foundation. So I would work that job in the evening and then I would work the hospital in the daytime. And then I would work Green Eagle Warriors and I would work on my own company. And then I always had like a third contract for consulting and the extra dollars, the extra about 30 grand a year, I would put towards Green Eagle Warriors, writing the books, paying the editors, paying the artists, making the videos, paying the website people and paying for the books to be printed because then I would give them to schools. And then eventually... The youth had the idea at our summer camp program that I had been running and paying for all these years to start making plays. They wanted to do performances because they thought younger kids and middle schoolers would enjoy the books as performances. And so we started making costumes by hand and the young kids and some high school students I was working with and some college students designed the costumes for De Niro, the frog, Phantom Draw and the Greenacre Warrior Warrior characters. Um, And honestly, I was really blessed, Melinda, to come across really highly intelligent, passionate youth, um, or maybe like things are drawn together because I had Casey Dilzer. She was a student from Enfield. She was with me for like five years. She ran Greenacre Warrior Camp and wrote a lot of the stuff. Elijah Hilleman, who now owns a coffee shop in Hartford, he became an entrepreneur as well. He was um, the original Phantom Draw, and he used to drive and act in all the plays with me all across the United States. Alia Salem, she's a Muslim student from Windsor. She helped um, author our policy platforms and work with college students to write um, the policy work that you see at Green Eagle Warriors. And so honestly, I've just been so blessed that in my my also, um, Rebecca Castro-Baez runs Energy Efficiency Solutions with me now. But when I started Green Eagle Warriors, my dad had cancer and I had cancer and my mom and I met Rebecca and she was actually helping with hospice with my father. And then eventually when my father passed on, I was so sad of losing her in my life that I started training her how to answer the phones and do billing for energy efficiency solutions. And now she runs that company full time. So it's been a journey. And I kind of say to people, it's my winding warrior journey. That's why often I'm saying like, this is the warrior way, because every day I see it as an opportunity to identify a problem and create a solution collaboratively or to celebrate the things that already exist, like the trees that we walked in at my property, the amazing blessed feeling of the wind blowing through them and you can hear it. It sounds like they're breathing. Or if I walk to the river, well, right now the river is very sad, as you mentioned, Melinda, so it's a little depressing, but generally when I walk to the river, I'm looking at the beautiful flow of water and I'm thinking about how we're all connected by these rivers, streams and tributaries and oceans and how we really are just one people on one planet. And the reality, Melinda, is is that no matter where you're sitting right now or any of your listeners, you, me, we're all physically touching through the space between the cells in our body and the air which connects us and the water and the molecules that truly have no boundaries which is why we can drink water and breathe air transferably, returning those things back to the environment where nature cleans them and we could drink them and breathe them again if it weren't for us humans pumping toxins into the environment. Well, thank you for that. And I'm glad you took a breath because I want to reintroduce you. Um, I'm speaking with Leticia Colón de Mejías, 
who, um, as I said in the beginning, uh, wears so many hats. I don't know how you can hold your head up, but um, we've been talking about uh, sort of the history of how you got involved in climate issues and energy issues. And you you mentioned you, uh, just at the end there, you were talking about your property and when I came to visit you last week. Um, but I wanted, and you kind of summed it up really briefly, uh, kind of what the whole thing is about. But um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about that because I, I just loved it so much. And uh, just, uh, I don't know, just the briefest sort of overview of, of what's there. I mean, we took a half hour or an hour to walk through it, but... Um, you know, what, what it looks like and how you use the property and who comes there. Sure. So my property is about 4.75 acres, but it feels much larger as you experienced. Right. Ultimately, um, I bought this property when I was um, 20 years old. Uh, I bought a foreclosure that no one wanted. It was on the market for three years. I'm on Palisado Avenue in Windsor. And it was dilapidated and horrific. It had dumpster after dumpster of trash dumped into the woods and the wetland behind the house. And the house had no like viable windows or walls. But I saw potential in the property itself. And plus, it was the only thing I could afford at that time. And so I took out a mortgage. And every year when I got my tax return as a single mother, I would take that money and replace window or a wall or door. Or I would hire people from the community to remove trash um, and to bring it to the right places where it belongs to be recycled or whatever it needed to happen. And then I built all of these spaces and places for what I call peace um, and prosperity. And ultimately, what I'm trying to do is a permaculture project, or really what I am doing, I suppose. So what I did was I kept many large things like old black cherry trees or chestnut trees, anything that was edible, elderberries. And I also love the old white oaks. And I have sycamore trees and Norwegian maples that are about, you know, 20 foot around. Um, I was in love with the land and I still am. And every year we just try to pick projects that will enhance the beauty and make it more accessible to people. We run a summer camp here. It starts right after the week after school gets out and it runs until the last week before school begins. And there are all types of children that come. Originally, it started with the employees of Energy Efficiency Solutions, which are mostly minorities. Um, and we're having trouble finding high quality childcare during school breaks or summer. And so I thought, well, I'm good with kids and I love them. Why don't we just bring them here and I'll hire someone to hang out with our kids while we're working. And that's what we did. And it worked really well. And we wrote curriculum as we were kind of going about it. We would say to the kids, well, what do you want to learn about? And what do you like best about things? And then we would develop projects around their ideas. So we have chicken coops where the kids collect eggs and they use the eggs to make bread and we grow wheat. And we have a program called Breaking Bread where we teach them to make bread with five ingredients that are natural. We sell them for $5 a loaf and the kids split the money at the end of the summer. We also have piano and we have drumming. We have archery, we have swimming. We have urban forestry because we have a beautiful relationship with the Connecticut Forest and Park Association. Um, we have our own urban forestry program, which we started ourselves as community scientists. And I'm also an appointed member of NIAC. So we have the added benefit of working with the EPA to see really great um, ideas on helping students understand environmental justice and the importance of taking care of places to protect people. Now, I'm going to stop you to say what some of the, I think people probably know the EPA is the Environmental Protection Agency, the federal agency, but what is NIAC? NIAC is the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council, 
that provides oversight for the EPA in relationship to environmental justice at the national level. And you're so, on that, correct? You serve. I'm, appoint I'm appointed for region one. Each region has a representative that is appointed and vetted by the White House. Um, Massachusetts has one, Connecticut has one, but there are 40 appointees at the national level. Well, yeah, I'd like to finish your, go back to your story about the land, but then I want to, I want to talk about some of the things that you uh, are involved with uh, at the national and perhaps the state level, but yeah, talk a little, finish up what you did with the land and the kids and everything. Sure. So interestingly, back to Rebecca, her husband, Angel and Rebecca were my longest standing employees at Energy Efficiency Solution. Her husband was my first ever hire. And he uh, was willing to help me when he was hired. He's willing to do anything, actually, to be very honest. And so was she. And so she and he and my husband and I, we would suit up in Tyvek suits, which is a protective covering that you see people wear in, in, in danger zones outside. And we would clear the land and then we would dumpster after dumpster, get rid of it. Now that same area down the wetland, we have built wetland bridges that are floating bridges. We have um, tiny A-frames for families who are afraid to sleep in tents. They can sleep in um, an A-frame that's raised up so that they can have an outdoor experience overnight. And that helps to increase people's uh, feeling of safety in nature, which sometimes for people who grew up in an urban environment like New York or Hartford or Bridgeport, where they've not experienced deep woods, it can feel nervous for them. And so this allows them to slowly transition from a safe structure to tents to be more, more even closer to nature. Um, we also do wetland programs and we have a pond here where we explain the water cycle. So our pond, um, it is a natural filtration, filtration system. And so we can explain to children how, you know, soil and pebbles and stones and how nature itself can clean and detoxify things when we allow it to do so. Um, we also talk about, you know, the woods and ferns and moss and how plants are medicine. We talk about elderberries and blackberries and blueberries and strawberries and how they're high in antioxidants. Uh, we talk about, we teach them also to grow. So we have an organic farm and the kids have farming beds where they plant what they want. So we give them seeds and they can choose what they want to plant, which is always exciting to see what comes up. And so like this year we did a broccoli project. We planted broccoli early, of course, and then we harvested it when some of the college kids who are now older came home for the summer. They worked with the younger students and they harvested the broccoli and they made a stir fry. And we all had this blessed lunch outside in nature of things that we planted, cared for and harvested. So ultimately, what we try to do is teach the kids what I call TPs, the TPs that we carry with us. These are our talents time, tenacity, teamwork, talking, teaching, and prosperity, planning, patience, peace. And we use our TPs, which we can fold up and carry with us anywhere in life, these skills. And we plant seeds as we go. We share what we know to make the world a better place for everyone. And that is the best way I can sum up the overarching concept of Green Eagle Warriors which tells us that every single person, everyone big or small, has a warrior living within their spirit. And when we wake that warrior within us, and we go down the rabbit hole, so to speak, and start taking personal responsibility and ownership over our own daily choices, we can inspire others and potentially the world at large to come together because together we're stronger 
And together, all things are possible, even solving our environmental crises. Well, that sounds like a good ending, but we're not, we have a few minutes left. So let me, let me ask you, um, and we do only have like three minutes. Um, just give me, I know you're on so many uh, boards and, and task forces. And uh, I mean, I, I'm, I don't know how you even find time, just if that was your only job. What, um, why do you participate in these? What do you bring to those tables? And what do you think is missing that needs to be considered? Melinda, that's such a beautiful question. I give up my personal time with my family and even time for self-care, specifically because I feel like if I don't do it, no one will. And the boards that I'm on are the Governor for Cli the Governor's Council for Climate Change, CJAC, which is the Connecticut Environmental Justice Advisory Council, NIAC, which is the federal version of that, the Governor's um, Council on Workforce Strategy, with the Office of Workforce Strategy, the Economic Development Council Minority Board Initiative. I'm the chair of Latino and Puerto Rican Affairs for the Commission on Equity and Opportunity for the State of Connecticut's Commission on Equity and Opportunity for Women, Children, and Elderly. And I think that's most of the positions that I hold here. <laughs> oh, I'm the national co-chair of the Building Performance Association of America. Maybe that's all of them now. But the reason why I give up my time to do these things, Melinda, is because I'm a woman of color, and often I'm the only woman of color in that room. And because of that, I feel if I don't show up, those people who don't have the time, the power, or the privilege to be in those spaces, to speak meaningfully on the things that matter most to those who are most disparaged, that I am not doing my part in the honor of my father and my mother. I feel like I'm letting my dead mother and father down unless I show up and stand up and speak meaningfully and honestly and that I research before I open my mouth to know what I'm talking about so that I can help others who cannot help themselves. And how do you, how do you feel like it's going in terms of, of your participation? Are people listening? Do you feel like your has your uh, participation, you know, do you feel like it's made a difference? Well, I feel like it's hard to judge oneself and what, what we accomplish, at least for me. And I definitely think that despite what people might think of me, I have a low self-esteem problem. You know, people might not recognize that, but oftentimes when people act very strong and abrasive, it's because there's something underneath that is festering. And for me, that's the case. You know, I never feel good enough. Um, so I just keep at it, Melinda, you know what I'm saying? Until I feel I've done enough. And I probably, like my husband says, I'm much like, you know, Hamilton, I will never be satisfied. Um, my husband's belief is that no matter how much I accomplish, I will never be satisfied. I think that's true, but I do feel I've done some things and I'll name a few things that I see value in. One is I stopped the raid on the Connecticut Energy Efficiency Fund, which had been raided five times prior to my suing the state of Connecticut with a coalition that would have continued to happen. And the Connecticut people wouldn't have access to energy saving opportunities through Energize Connecticut. I also helped create the Healthy Homes Program in Connecticut by, as you know, Melinda, pitching a fit over the course of five years about the discrepancy in access for low-income people who had junky housing. Those are some of the things. And recently, I helped in an EPA meeting, um, drove home the idea that we can't tackle air 
quality issues if we don't even have a line in the EPA's plan on energy emissions. So I feel like sometimes, even though I seem like I'm not the voice of reason, I think I am. So I think sometimes it is my passionate, very direct and sometimes abrasive way of bringing forward information that helps others recognize it's their time to stand up and speak up as well. Yeah, Leticia, thank you so much. Um, we talked when I visited you, we we talked a little bit about, you know, feeling like one feeling like one isn't good enough and can never do enough. And, you know, I think that is true for a lot of people, including people who are having this conversation right now. But anyway, I will definitely have to have you back because there's a lot more to talk about. But um, thank you so much for visiting with us um, this morning and uh, take care with all of the work that you're doing. And I do hope to come back and visit you again sooner than it took me like three years to get there last week. <laughs> well, you're always welcome, Melinda, and you're welcome to bring friends because I'm sure you'll be in good company. Okay, thank you. Take care. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. That was Leticia Colon de Mejias, whom you just heard wears many hats and has done important work in many arenas and is continuing to do that work. You've been listening to The Forest and the Trees, global and local perspectives on the environment with your host, Melinda Tuhus. Tune in on the second Saturday of every month at 9.30 a.m. here on WPKN 89.5 FM for more environmental news you can use. <laughs>